Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey everyone, um, please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. We're still in chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 26 today. Uh, this is our Advent series. As Pastor Ryan was saying last week, Advent is this time of preparation. It's a season of spiritual preparation as we commemorate the arrival of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus. And so, not surprisingly, we come across a pregnancy announcement in our passage. Uh, hearing that a baby is going to be on the way uh, is kind of news that upends your world. I remember those days. And there's a lot of preparation that begins, right? Got to get a nursery ready. Got to get car seats and cribs and baby clothes and bottles and all kinds of gadgets, right? Getting ready, getting prepared for an arrival. And that's the intention behind the season. Are you all uh, decorated for Christmas yet? You know, why, why, why do we do that? Why do we do this? Why do we decorate? What's the point? It's a lot of work, isn't it? You know, bust out a ladder, climb up on the roof. That's dangerous. You know, why do we bother with it? We're just going to take it all down in a month anyway. You know, why? Is this just silliness? No, I think it's actually profound. You know, we are body and soul. We are physical and spiritual beings that's intertwined, and God relates to us in that. He gives circumcision, a physical act for a spiritual purpose. Communion is spiritual and physical. Baptism is spiritual and physical. And these physical symbols are spiritual acts. We prepare our hearts for Christ by preparing our homes for Christmas. Now, if we're just trying to outdo our neighbors, well, that's a different thing. But I think our lives can be too bifurcated, where we can have the, our religious things that we do, the spiritual things that we do, and then everything else. But that's not so. In everything that we do, it should be done for the glory of God. Yeah, everything, including getting a box out of an attic, right? feeling the weight of it in your arms, doing the work, doing the labor of decorating that ought to be a manifestation of a spiritual reality that I'm making ready that I'm preparing him room. That's what we sing, isn't it? Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. That's what we're after. We can feel like it's just silliness, uh, that it's just empty tradition, and it can be. Others of us may not feel like decorating this year or going through all the work. You know, we might have lost a loved one, and we're not really feeling the holiday cheer. Or we've had a bad diagnosis, or dealing with some sobering issues, and And life is just too serious for this sort of frivolity. And you don't have to. You don't have to decorate or stick to traditions. But I would actually encourage it. Because as Christians, uh, in this time of history, we are living in a time of Advent. We live in a time of waiting and anticipation for Christ to return. And so Christmas is not just to celebrate that Christ came, but it's to remind us that he's coming again. And he tells us to be ready. So that's part of it. We are body and soul. We need physical acts for spiritual purpose. So with each light that we put up and every ornament that we hang, let it be a reminder that God kept his promise. God kept his promise. God kept his promise. The Messiah came and he's coming again. Let every heart prepare him room. And with that in mind, let's turn to our passage today. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. That's a very similar sort of scene from the section that we looked at last week. The angel Gabriel once again shows up, once again has to say, don't be afraid, once again brings a pregnancy announcement, once again we have a miracle baby. Once again he tells him what they need to name the child, once again he tells them what this child is going to do and be. A lot of similarities. Uh, these are mirroring accounts. Uh, but I think it's done to demonstrate the marked differences. Uh, who is greater, John the Baptist or Jesus? It's Jesus. We know that. And John the Baptist would be the first to emphatically admit that. But you wouldn't think that just by looking at the pregnancy announcements. Uh, here's how it starts with John the Baptist. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Zechariah is a priest, a person of at least some importance, and the angel comes to him at a moment when he's received a great honor. He's serving in the temple in Jerusalem. That's a more fitting setting, isn't it, for a grand, important announcement? But contrast that with the announcement of Jesus, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Luke has to introduce it. He has to explain where Nazareth is because the assumption seems to be that Theophilus, who he's writing this to, would have no idea where it is. It's not exactly Jerusalem. It's not the temple. It's a small, insignificant village in Galilee that people wouldn't have heard of. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any of the Jewish writings of the time. In fact, aside from the scriptures, it wasn't until 1962 that we found any other literary evidence for Nazareth. In 1962, an inscription was discovered bearing the name of Nazareth. So side note, the Bible is historically accurate. But Nazareth is not a notable place. And Mary is a nobody. You know, contrast the way Luke introduces Elizabeth with Mary. Verse 5. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, partly I think why Luke describes them that way is because of the following verse. Verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. I think Luke wants to make it clear that Elizabeth was not barren and they were not unable to have kids because of some sin or wickedness on their part. That's not why, so Luke emphasizes that they were righteous and they followed God's commands. 
But I think the contrast is still noteworthy. Here's Matthew's gospel account of this. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Joseph, a righteous man. But here's Mary's introduction back to verse 26 in Luke. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. That's it. The virgin's name was Mary. That's a somewhat less flowery sort of introduction than Elizabeth got, who was righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And here's Mary. She's a virgin. Now, I'm sure that Mary was pious and devout and followed the law of Moses, just like Elizabeth. And Luke will give her her due. He will. But the emphasis here is not her piety, but her ordinariness. She's just a girl. So when the angel shows up and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored, that comes across as a striking statement because she's a nobody. In fact, that's what Mary proclaims in the Magnificat. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Verse 51, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And we'll look at that passage in more detail next week. But she's praising God for exalting her, raising her up from her lowly state, and reflecting on his character as one who brings down the proud and raises up the humble. The emphasis is her ordinariness so that we can see the humility of God in the incarnation. Philippians 2 verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The apostle Paul there in Philippians is pointing us to the humility in his death, but it's also humility in his birth. It's also humility in his conception. It's also humility in the pregnancy announcement. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, but you wouldn't know it, you wouldn't think it, If you were just looking at the pregnancy announcements, it's not Jerusalem, it's not the temple, it's not revealed to a priest or someone of importance. No, it's just a girl from a town no one's heard of. Now, we talk a lot about the lowly and undignified conditions in which God Almighty, the King of kings and Lord of lords, chooses to be born, resting in a feeding trough. But this unfathomable humility, this unfathomable condescension starts from the very beginning, from even the proclamation of the angel. I don't think it can be overstated just how God humbles himself in the incarnation. Very similar accounts, but markedly different, including the response of Mary and Zechariah. Now, they both question the angel, right? In verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And Mary says, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? But the angel rebukes Zechariah, and he is struck mute. Now, why is that? Aren't they both questioning the angel? Well, it may seem similar, but these are markedly different encounters and markedly different responses. Mary's question is not, how will I know? 
but how will it be done? She's not asking for a sign. She's not asking for proof. She's asking for detail. Zechariah is asking for more evidence, a sign, a further demonstration. He's what the Apostle Paul chastises in 1 Corinthians. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. He's what Jesus condemns in Matthew. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now understand, it is okay to have questions and to ask those questions of God. It's okay to have doubt at times and to wrestle with our faith. That's reality. Let's not pretend otherwise. Each one of us is that man who cries out to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. That's such a great statement, and that's all of us to some degree. And God knows that, and he does give us signs for our belief. You see that throughout all of Scripture, including Jesus, who performed miracles so that we might believe. Jesus says this in John, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or at least, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. God is not against giving us signs. The angel gives Mary a sign in our text, verse 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Elizabeth is the sign for Mary. Another miracle baby. That's the sign for Mary. God is not against giving us signs or giving us proof or aiding our unbelief. The issue is of sufficiency. My wife will occasionally grab my phone and and look through it. You know, who are you texting? Who are you emailing? Right, you're right, checking in on me. And I let her because I I think it's a good thing. And I do the same to her on occasion. You know, jealousy in its proper context is good. God is a jealous God. Jealousy is one of the first names that he gives himself. So that's one thing. But if my wife were constantly hounding me, snooping on my calls, reading my email, reading my texts, tracking me with GPS, at some point I'm going to get annoyed when there's no reason for the doubt, when there's no reason for the mistrust. At some point, the doubt and lack of trust is an issue in the relationship. It's a problem in the relationship. It's an indication that there's something broken, that there's something wrong there. Well, how much more so when this is applied to God? who isn't like me, isn't fallible, isn't sinful, how much more should we be able to trust him and to believe him? See, it's about sufficiency. The constant need, the constant demand for signs and proof is indicative of brokenness, of something wrong in the relationship. That's why Jesus uses relational language. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for signs and wonders. It's a question of sufficiency. So let's look at Zechariah. Number one, This is something that he explicitly prayed for. That's what the angel says to him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Number two, Zechariah has the word of God. And what happens with Elizabeth isn't new in Scripture. You have Sarah, the mother of Isaac, who was barren and beyond childbearing years. And you have all kinds of examples in the Bible of infertility and God intervening. You have Rebecca, you have Rachel, you have Hannah, you have the mother of Samson, and and many, many others. It's a theme. The scriptures should be evidence to Zechariah that God can do this and has before. And number three, which is not least of all, an angel appears to Zechariah. 
You take it all together, and that really should be sufficient for the belief. Contrast that with Mary, where the word of the angel is sufficient for belief. And this is something entirely new. This is a work of God not seen before, not done before in Scripture. And Mary didn't pray for this. Or at least the angel doesn't say, Mary, your prayers are answered. She, she might have prayed for the Messiah to come. That's probably likely. She maybe was even bold enough to pray that she would bear the Messiah. Maybe. But if she did, I very much doubt that she prayed for it to happen this way. You know, Mary doesn't do anything wrong, but she finds herself in a scandal. Joseph plans to divorce her. They're not married yet, they're engaged, but in those days, an engagement was far more formal. Legal contracts would be drawn up, and divorce would be the only way to break those contracts. This is a scandal. This good Jewish girl who is obedient to the law of Moses is shamed, scandalized, right? whispers and murmurs, and judgmental stares in the village. Similar accounts, but markedly different. Elizabeth is barren, and there's a significant stigma to that in the culture. She's blemished. She's disgraced. She's shamed. And God acts. He performs a miracle, and he takes away her shame. He takes away her disgrace. Not so with Mary. It's a miracle that brings shame. A miracle that brings disgrace. A miracle that brings scandal. You know, Mary is still mocked for this to this day. And how many times have you heard the same sort of joke, you know, oh, virgin birth, or a girl who really stuck to her story? She's still mocked. But Jesus says these words, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And that's what Mary does. She submits to the will of the Father. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. She takes on Christ and she's mocked for it and shamed for it and disgraced because of it. Why did God choose that way? Why Mary? Why not someone like Elizabeth? Someone barren and beyond childbearing years, but married. Still a miracle baby, but without the shame, without the scandal without the disgrace. But God chooses the shame. God chooses the scandal. God chooses the disgrace because that's a picture for us of what Jesus comes to do. In these dual accounts, we see the purpose of the coming Messiah. The Bible declares in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These are similar accounts, but markedly different. Elizabeth moves from shame to no shame. Mary goes from no shame to shame. That's a picture, an illustration of the coming Messiah. Because Jesus, who knew no sin, becomes sin. He takes away our sin. He takes away our shame. He takes away our disgrace. And he puts it on himself, though he did nothing to deserve it, though he was obedient to the law. The scripture says this of him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That is Christ, the Messiah. As the Apostle Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. He was innocent. He was perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. But he humbles himself from the very beginning and takes on humanity so that he who knew no sin could become sin, and he submits to the will of the Father and becomes obedient as a servant, obedient even to death, to take away our sin, to take away our shame, to take away our disgrace, and to put it on himself. Let's praise him. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.